0: John nineteen is where, where I'll be speaking from this morning. As we progress our way toward, uh, toward Holy Week, which starts next Sunday, um, I've been teaching through the last statements that Jesus made from the cross, and so uh, the way the storyline progresses after his betrayal and arrest and trial. Uh, he was convicted and sentenced to death, and they uh, had a particular strategy that they would use to basically just b- to beat them to death, but not cross that threshold, just short of death. and then they would march them to a certain spot and they would nail them to a cross, and then they would let them hang there and slowly suffocate. Uh, Rome was incredibly cruel. This was a deterrent to crime, and they were extremely good at it. Um, And so, uh, once Jesus is up on the cross, there are seven seven statements that he made. The first one, the first thing he does after going through all that is he prays. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, Could have been talking about the people crucifying him. It could have been talking about the crowd that had turned on him and uh, basically just betrayed him. He could be talking about his, his own disciples who had abandoned him. Could be talking about you, me. Could be talking about that thing that you did this week or that struggle that you've had or whatever it may be. I think it's probably all of that combined into one thing, that we are all the them, forgive them. Then immediately God answers that prayer. Because one of the thieves, uh, in in summary, professed that he believes that Jesus is telling the truth about himself and asked him to save him. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So that prayer for forgiveness was immediately answered by the father uh, by saving one of those thieves. Then uh, in front of him, at, at some point, Jesus' mother was there, Mary, and his best friend John, and he entrusts the care of Mary to John. Even though they weren't blood, biological family, uh, they were spiritual family. Jesus was like, that's what he is creating. That's a part of what the cross is doing is creating this new family where you have a biological family and you have a spiritual family. Uh, you got two families. And uh, that's in as a byproduct. The primary thing was making sure his mom was taken care of. That represents though, uh, the church and his formation of uh, what we have here today. Then, the fourth saying, he quotes Psalm 22, which in their culture you quote a part of the psalm and it would it would bring to mind the entire psalm because they were uh, they memorized everything. And so uh, he quotes the first line of Psalm 22, which says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Um, which at first seems really dire. But the psalm, if you you know the whole thing, the psalm is a lament about feeling forsaken, that your circumstances are indicating that God hates you. He has completely left you. But yet the psalm swings into victory of saying, but I know that's not true. Like I know things look really bad, but victory is coming. Like God will stay true to who he is. And so from the cross, Jesus is, in a sense, saying, I know this really looks terrible, uh, but let's not forget the character of the Father, what he has promised. And maybe he's saying that to himself. Maybe he's saying that to the crowd. Maybe he's saying that to the Father. doesn't really matter. That entire psalm is brought back into mind. Uh, Yes, acknowledging the difficulty of the situation, but also the faithfulness of God. And this brings us to the fifth saying... So, John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Okay, so within those couple of verses, you have the fifth saying and the sixth saying. So now, spoiler alert, next week, it is finished. That's what I will talk about. But today, I want to talk about the fifth statement, which is, I thirst. And I got to admit, I was not very excited about this one. Um, The other ones are just more interesting to me, or they were, before I started to ask God what he thinks about it, you know, and start to read some of what has been written about it. And I kept asking myself, why, why did he say this? Like why was, why didn't he just say six things from the cross? Well, this seems more like a footnote or something, but it made the cut. And I bring to you five, five reasons. Um, So why did Jesus say this? First reason, he was thirsty. I know, I'm like the M. Night Shalaman of sermon points. Never saw it coming. He said, I thirst because he was thirsty. Like this was the most physically exhausting form of torture and death that Rome could come up with. And they were professionals at cruelty. This was, this was it. And when you start to read human like like historical accounts and things like that, a lot of people will say, this is probably the worst thing we've ever come up with as broken people. So there's a physical ex- exhaustion that was there from the, just from the entire process. And so would he have been dehydrated? Absolutely, he would have been dehydrated. So that's the first point. He was thirsty. Second, why did he say this? Well, it says it it right there. Look at 28 again. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Okay? So what scripture is he fulfilling? Well, he's already quoted Psalm 22. Verse 15 of that psalm says this. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is like a, like a piece of pottery that you would find in like an archaeological dig, like a, like a scrap of pottery. So just completely dry. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then other scholars point to Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So Jesus is saying, I thirst to fulfill the scriptures. There is so much happening here that's connecting to prophecies found throughout the Old Testament about the crucifixion. So um, if you remember Advent and we're like looking at the birth narrative, but how much that was forecasted and how many specific things about the birth narrative, uh, like how many of those boxes were checked, the crucifixion narrative is, is the same way. All of these different details that are happening throughout the Old Testament uh, that were described throughout the Old Testament are happening in the moment. And it almost seems like Jesus is wanting to make sure that's not lost on anyone. Like, here's, here's, a, here's a quick list of the kinds of details. And so if you bring the whole crucifixion narrative to your mind... Isaiah 50, it says that he will be spat upon and struck. Isaiah 53, he'd be crucified alongside criminals and numbered with other sinners. Uh, Like I said a minute ago, Psalm 69, that he would drink, he would be given vinegar to drink. Uh, Zechariah 12, his hands and feet would be pierced. Um, That's also in Psalm 22. Uh, A couple other things from Psalm 22, that he would be mocked and ridiculed that the soldiers would gamble for his garments, uh, that he would experience separation from the Father. Uh, Let's see, Exodus 12 and Psalm 34, that his bones would not be broken. Psalm 109, that he would actually pray for his enemies. Zechariah 12, that his side would be pierced by the soldiers. Um, Again, Isaiah 53, that his burial, he'd be buried alongside the rich. Um, all of these prophecies found in different places, written by different people in different eras who didn't know each other. There's no conspiracy. All these details that were peppered throughout the Old Testament are happening in the moment. And if you were sitting there and you were like checking boxes, it would check all the boxes. And so it's almost like Jesus is wanting to make sure that whoever's out there checking boxes is checking this box too. To me, that's why it says he said it to fulfill the scriptures. Like he he couldn't. He wasn't in control of all those boxes. It wasn't up to him if they broke his bones or if they uh, tore his garments or gambled for his belongings. But this one, he was like, no, no, no. I want to make sure that you know this is exactly what God said would happen. A friend sent me, uh, sent me this a while back. There's a guy named Peter Stoner, and he has a book called Science Speaks. It says that he calculated the chance of any, any one man fulfilling all of those prophecies. Like all the Old Testament prophecies. What are the chances of one person checking all of those boxes, considering different centuries, different parts of the world, different authors, different whatever? What are the chances? One in 100 quadrillion. That's what's happening in the moment is those kinds of odds are unfolding right before them. Like there's just no way that this was a coincidental thing. You have to stop believing in like logic and science and everything else. You have to, you have to give up faith in all of those kinds of things in order to adopt that perspective that just, just happened to be happening And it seems that the verse is saying Jesus said this to fulfill the scriptures, to make sure that anyone paying attention knew exactly what was happening here in that moment. Their culture was huge on eyewitnesses. So here are no telling how many eyewitnesses watching a one in 100 quadrillion chance event happen right in front of them. Jesus just punctuates that. He wanted to validate what they were seeing and validate what he was experiencing. So why did he say, I thirst? Because he was thirsty. To fulfill the scriptures would be the second one. Here's the third one. And as I go down the list, I get further further from like the like concrete, it says it in the verse, like I just did, and more into, let's Let's speculate based on other parts of Scripture. So I'm taking some liberties from here on out, but I don't think that I'm wrong because otherwise I would not bring that to you. The third reason would be to empower what he would say next. So as I said, the sixth saying is, it is finished. Now, if he is dehydrated, and unable, like unable to speak that, then perhaps one of, part of his reasoning is, I need, I need to get geared up for this. You know, like if you were a soloist and you were, you took one last sip of water before you went out. You know, he. Some of this is based on the fact that he. Actually turned down something earlier, and so when I think like, okay, I'm, I'm getting more into like speculation. I want to also say this: there's this is not a, like a like six points of application sermon. This has very little to do with what you and I therefore need to go and do. And a hundred percent, can you believe that Jesus is this awesome? Okay. Earlier in the crucifixion narrative, he turns down a drink. This is in Matthew 27, verse 33. It says, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, apparently, it was because crucifixion was so cruel the, uh, the compassionate women of the town had gotten to where they would figure out how to like give nourishment to the men being crucified, but they mixed this kind of concoction that would actually dull the pain. And Jesus was offered that when he tasted it, he knew what it was and he spit it out that he refused something that would lessen his pain. But then later on, when offered sour wine, this was another like cultural thing. The Roman soldiers had developed this kind of sour wine that was kind of like the Gatorade of their time. Like it would replenish them uh, quicker than water when they were out in the field and stuff like that, and fresh water was hard to find, they would drink this sour wine it would kind of energize them a little bit. So he turns down the pain-numbing drink, but says yes to something that's going to extend his life. Now he's in the worst suffering that humans have ever come up with. You would think that you would want a quick death. But yet, he's like, no, give me, give me something that's going to let me live longer and quench this thirst of mine because I have something really important to say. And I want to make sure it's written down. I don't know if that is true 100%, but I do know that Jesus said no to a shortcut. That he said no to... I want to experience all of it. And it makes sense to me that he would say, Well, I can't really proclaim it is finished with my throat like a potsherd. So, seeing the Roman soldiers' supply of Gatorade, he's like, Let me have some of that. I got one more thing to say. Actually, two more, but that's another issue. So, why did he say it? He was thirsty fulfilling scriptures, to empower him to say it is finished. Number four is he has become sin. In Isaiah 53 verse four, the first part of this says, "Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows." The end of Isaiah 50, fifty-two and all of fifty-three is where we get a lot of, like, it's like theologically uh, very, like, dense and robust and beautiful and terrible and all that. It's one of the one of the big chapters that helps us understand a little bit more about what's happening here he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus became sin. Now, that is something that will, is really, really important for us to continue to try to like learn and understand that when we sing about the cross, when we sing uh, anything really, but especially these cross-centered songs, that a part of what we are recognizing is that all of my sin and death that I have brought to the world, that he, he bore that, he carried that, for my entire life and all the ripples that my sin and death have brought into your lives and to the lives of people around me all the time, all of that put onto Him. That times all of us put onto Him. And so Him becoming sin is a really hard to grasp thing. But that's what what the Bible teaches us, that... That yes, the physical pain of crucifixion was excruciating. But if you if you take a more heavenly look at it, becoming sin, probably way worse for Jesus. The physical pain, every man that ever been crucified had felt that. But this becoming sin, that's different. So what does this have to do with him being thirsty? Well, in the Bible, sin and dryness are associated with each other, like the the desert. Uh, For example, Psalm 32, verse 4, it's a psalm about confession and and the weightiness of sin. And it says, "For for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We find that in different parts of the Bible, that connection of like, like a desert dryness with, with spiritual drought. And we've experienced that too, right? Like you, you have those times where you've just disconnected from the Lord and you, you're not praying, you're not reading the Bible, you're not engaging in worship, you're not really living in community. You're just being the king of your own little kingdom. And when that catches up with you, like you're, you feel the dry, like a like a dried up desert, you know? At the same time in the Bible, water is equated with cleansing and with the work of the Holy Spirit. So in Ezekiel 36, part of the new covenant says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Jesus says this in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of God. The first seven chapters of John, there are all these like water-related teaching points and miracles and these things It's always connected to renewal, cleansing, the work of the Spirit. So think of those two scenarios. Sin and death are associated with the dryness of the desert, Forgiveness, healing, cleansing, renewal, the work of the Holy Spirit, all connected to water. That when you are in the dryness of the desert, what do you long for? You long for the activity of the Spirit to bring the cleansing and healing that you need. And so, perhaps on some level, this statement also reflects that separation from the Father and Spirit that Jesus is experiencing we know that God separates Himself from sin, uh, from sinners, because we are the carriers of sin, and His holiness would just destroy us. His love and His compassion are going to destroy the things that are threatening His kids. The problem is we carry it like it's it's in us, and so this entire plan of salvation is a way is a way for His holiness. Uh, to not destroy us anymore. And I'll get into all that in the next couple weeks as well. Not to skip over it, but there's only so much time. Um, And so Jesus, though, on the cross, as he's becoming sin, in some capacity, his relationship to the Father and to the Spirit has changed. That's why Psalms 22 makes so much sense. When he's like, why have you forsaken me? Because that, expresses, like, what he's feeling in that moment. And it gets confusing a little bit, right? Because two things are happening at the same moment. The, Jesus is sin, and that has affected his connection to the Father and the Spirit. And at the same time, the Trinity has not diminished in power or unity at all. So you go too far in one direction, and it makes it... Like the Father and the Spirit, like we've got to figure out how to do this without Jesus because I've turned my face away and I've abandoned him and all that kind of stuff. And that that is problematic. But if you go too far the other direction, then it's not acknowledging that sin and death have like done what they have done. And so somehow these two things that seem to contradict each other, they're both happening. And we just kind of have to be smart like humble enough to say, I'm not smart enough to explain it or to, or to understand it. But I believe in this moment, something it brutal is happening to Jesus and him becoming sin and how that affects his relationship to the Father and Spirit. And yet the universe is not spinning out of control because the Trinity has somehow stopped being the Trinity. And so could it be that him saying, I thirst is, is also... He's experiencing for the first time what it means to be dry like the desert because of what what sin has done. He has only known the nourishing, love, compassion, fullness of water and the activity of the spirit. And now he's like, whoa. I think it's possible that, yes, this is a physical thing. He's actually thirsty and He's referencing scripture and he's gearing up to say it is finished and it is reflecting something like on that level as well. That maybe his thirst is metaphorical as well as literal. Final point. He wanted to add hyssop to the crucifixion narrative. You're like, I know. A little out there, but hang in there with me just a little bit. He wanted to add hyssop to the crucifixion narrative. Look at verse 29 again. So he says, I thirst, and then the soldiers respond to it. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. First of all, this is only in John's account. The other accounts just say it's like a stick or a reed or something. John's like, no, that's, that's hyssop. So what is hyssop? Hyssop is, it's a little like bushy kind of flowery plant thing that was equivalent to like a paintbrush. Like they would use it to brush things could be artwork could be different things so that's what hyssop is but here's what here's why hyssop is important this time uh, so if if you think of Holy Week starting on Palm Sunday so next Sunday um, the whole city is packed with people because it is Passover and people travel for Passover and so everyone is in Passover mode so Jesus rides through the city on a donkey that day and they're in Passover mode and they're like, okay, there was the first Moses. Now there's a new Moses. Uh, That's what we've been waiting on, this Messiah. He's going to be a general. He's going to be a like government leader. He's going to lead us back to world dominance. You know, they get so excited. And then that's over with. And then a couple of days he's teaching in the temple and he's telling them, hey, it's not that. They don't really understand. He has a special Thursday night meal, which I hope that you will come to uh, on Maundy Thursday. And they have a, the Passover meal. There's all these families gathered all over the city and they go through a meal and everything, a part of this meal is symbolic. And what they do is they go through, they, they are telling a story by going through each of these different elements. So Jesus and his disciples sat down for that meal on Thursday. So they were in Passover mode. And Passover is all about the exodus from Egypt. So in Exodus 12, verse 22, this is the instruction handed down to their ancestors. Take a bunch of hyssop, not bunch like a lot, like a bundle, bundle of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, okay? So um, if you remember the Exodus story, there's like, there have been nine plagues and Pharaoh was still not wanting to let them go out of slavery. And so God was like, okay, I'm gonna bring one more. And this one's, this one's gonna, is a doozy. So um, the, all the firstborns in every household are gonna die. dark. Yes, for another sermon. Yes, he tells them uh, you need to you need to get ready, so you need to cook a big meal, and get your bellies good and full for the journey. Some of that meal you're going to take with you. So he had to make things certain ways so that it wouldn't spoil on the journey. He's like, get just get get ready. And a part of that was for them to, to sacrifice a lamb and you take some of the blood and you dip the hyssop in the blood and you put it on your doorpost, on the on the frame of your door. And this is why. Verse 13 says this, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So when the spirit of God is going over, anywhere where the blood was present, he would pass over them, that's why it's called Passover. And the hyssop is what they would use to take the blood from the basin, to put it on the doorposts, out of obedience, out of faith, out of preparation, out of all those things. So hyssop, from that point in the history of Israel, you read more in the Bible, it became a part of, like a symbol of like cleansing. And so if, you know, there's like, they had all kind of weird things about you can't touch a dead body, or if someone had leprosy, but they thought they were healed, they had to go through a cleansing ritual, that kind of thing. Hyssop was a part of the cleansing in that. It was it was associated with the cleansing, healing, forgiving work of God starting at the Passover, but it was a part of a culture all the time, and it was used for that specifically. Psalm 51, as David is working through his sin, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. So it seems as though John... looking at what's happening, sees hyssop going up to Jesus. It's almost like for him, he's like, oh, I see what's happening here. Maybe Jesus looked down and saw those soldiers, are they're drinking wine off a sponge, but that's on hyssop. Maybe that was in his motivation too for saying, I thirst, give me some of that. Maybe it was one more way for him to say, Do you see what is happening here? This is the new Passover. This is what you've been waiting for. Much like Egypt, you were in a situation that you could not change. You have an oppressor that you could not figure your way around and you needed me to step in. Maybe Jesus is trying to say, hey, guess what? I really am the new Moses and I do have a plan to lead you into freedom. But you don't, have to, you don't have to kill any animals. You don't have to pack for the journey. You don't have to keep the laws. You don't have to keep the rules. You just need to trust that I am who I say I am. And you need to just obey follow me. You don't even have to put blood on the doorposts. Jesus put his own blood on the doorposts. I wonder if the imagery, John was like, look, hyssop, and it's going up toward a wooden cross. It's like a doorpost. And because of that blood, God will pass over us. His judgment will not destroy us because he sees the blood. And if you let me chase it a little bit more, Remember, they, they leave Egypt and they, they take off. They get to the Red Sea and they're like, what do we do? We're not sure what to do. And God's like, well, i tell you what, I'm gonna push all the waters back I'm gonna hold them back so you can cross on dry land. And to me, that's what we're doing right now. Like we're, we're crossing. The promised land is ahead of us, but we're not there yet. But we're crossing together. And God's holding, he's holding all the water back. And the, the ground is dry. And he's like, just keep going, keep going, keep going. Remember, Pharaoh changed his mind. They came after him, so they're chasing him. You got an enemy coming after you, but you're like, no, I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep going. God's holding the water back. We're good. And at some point, once everyone who has made it to the other side, it's gonna make it to the other side. Same thing that happened to Pharaoh. God's gonna let those waters come down on our enemy, and we hear Him chasing us, and we see that life is hard, and life—all these kind of things are happening. But we keep going, and when it's time, the wa- the waters will crash down, and our enemy will be done forever. And then we're on the other side. We're like, okay, we're in the promised land. What do we do now? And God's like, well. Uh, I'm gonna show you now how to do this this whole life thing, but without sin and death, without your brokenness that you carried around forever. No more jealousy, no more like competitive sin or whatever, no more objectification, no more war, no more human trafficking, no more mental illness, no more withholding forgiveness. You just fill in the blank all the things we hate about life here, none of it. It's like cool, so now you're in the promised land, your enemy's done forever. you are whole and complete let's let's live together forever, It all starts here, you know it all starts with the cross, so perhaps this also is what's going on within Jesus of saying, do you see that this is the new Passover and I'm the new Moses? Do you understand what is happening here? And I have a feeling that John was like, that's hyssop, that's making, that's making the book. You know, That's not a detail that's gonna get lost in history. And so here we are with this, these two words, I thirst. Maybe all of that was going on. We know for sure he was thirsty and we know it was to fulfill the scriptures, but what if in there too was him saying no to the pain numbing thing and yes to feeling every single bit of it so that when he said it was finished, he was like, no, it's really finished. What if he was like, I've soaked up all the sin, I've soaked up all the 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 punishment the way that God is dealing with the thing that's threatening his kids, there's nothing left. Let's take it to the grave. It really is finished. Let the Passover, like the real, true, new Passover, let it happen. So there we are with his blood over the doorposts of our lives, so to speak, living confidently in who he is, so as I said, there's not a lot of like application. But Sometimes I, I find myself just getting too caught up in that. There has to be an application point. What better application point than just being in awe of how amazing Jesus is? Not making it about us. So do with that what you will. Um, you know, we've been doing communion as a response. as as an optional response. And I think that for us, especially during Lent, like God is stirring different things. And I love having, having different ways to connect with what you're sensing in this moment that you could, you just be like, I just need to sit here and pray, you know. Maybe singing is like, that's exactly like, just quit talking, let's get to the singing part, you know. It could be though that receiving the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ poured out for you that perhaps like taking that into your body physically like is just is like this dose of goodness of Jesus saying hey I'm every I'm I'm everything that you need for life and godliness. And on that Thursday night when he they were thinking they were doing one thing with the Passover meal. And he's like, hey, I'm gonna do a new meal for the new Passover. And I want you to keep doing this meal until I return. And every time you do it, you proclaim my death until I come back. And so in the next couple of minutes, what do you you think you need? You know, like what? Like in terms of like, what does obedience look like for you, it could be praying, singing, it could be any number of things, maybe receiving communion, whatever it is. We just want to give ourselves enough space in these next couple of moments. And so in just a second, the musicians will come back, we'll kind of do our thing, but it's really just about like how incredible Jesus is and how, he, how amazing he has been uh, and always will be. Let's stand together and let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for um Thank you for making sure that those two little words made it into the book, you know. I'm sure there's much more that could be said about the fact that you were thirsty and handled the situation the way that you did. But the fact that you you told us that no one takes your life from you, you that you give your life. I'm so thankful for that reminder this morning of just exactly what Love and compassion and mercy and grace look like in in action. And we will certainly never fully understand the the things we're reading about and what, what was going on in heaven at the time, what was going on within you at the time. But Lord, we want to keep trying to understand more and more and more. And so would you continue to give us new insight and depth? But What we really want, Lord, is... For you to know that we love you and we th- are thankful. And so in these next few moments, as we respond, I pray that you would hear our hearts and, uh, yeah, that you would be pleased. We love you very, very much, and we thank you. pray this in your name. Amen.